0: Not mean life without boundaries. It means living life as the Holy Creator of the universe has spelled out for us because He loves us. There's so much to learn from history. It's ironic how much I talk about it now as an adult because I couldn't stand history in school. Of any stripe, of any country, of any time period. In the words of Bill and Ted, it was just all about a bunch of dead dudes. No practical value. How wrong I was. The lessons of history, in fact, I would go on to say, are quite possibly the next best thing to the revelation of God as far as predicting and preventing unnecessary large-scale catastrophes, either at a personal level or at a national or even global level. Maybe that's why we still hear today the oft-repeated axiom, attributed and paraphrased in different ways, but attributed to George Santayana, that those who fail to remember the past are doomed to repeat it. During the 45 rule of the judges that we were looking at last week, the two judges, Pua and Tola, instead of Israel growing in their relationship to their king and their protector, they typically grew lazy in their spiritual pursuits, putting God on a shelf. Not out of the picture, just out of the way. Last week I spent considerable time illustrating that the same pattern is today present in our culture and in our church. And I looked at the era of the 50s forward as a period of relative peace and prosperity with the palpable downward decline, not just in the culture at large, but within the church that wears the name of Christ. And as I look back on that era, I see two monuments of apostasy. Apostasy means the falling away from the living God. Two monuments of apostasy, which mark both our cultural and our ecclesiastical, that means the church, decay. The first is the 1973 Supreme Court decision, determining that it was a woman's right to choose whether to keep the life within her or not. And yes, it took several years, but many Christians and Christian denominations gradually signed on. And then I paused at September 11th, 2001, as the marker for the end of a 45 year period of relative peace and prosperity because it was historically unique and because it changed our country and, in fact, the entire world forever. Now, if you think that might be overstatement, in your spare time when you have a bottle of tagamet or tums at your side, enumerate for yourself how many social policies, how many state and federal laws, how many foundational workings of government and law enforcement have been reconstructed, forming a landscape that is unrecognizable since America became an independent nation. But the cataclysmic event in New York City did nothing to bring the church that wears Christ's name back to himself. And we've continued on a downward spiral memorialized by the second monument to the apostasy of both nation and church. That is the cultural and ecclesiastical embrace of homosexuality. The first monument, the abortion decision, marks the satanic, and believe me, it is utterly satanic, strike at the heart of what is called the Imago Dei, or the image of God with Satan seeking to destroy the image and the likeness of God, which is uniquely impressed and infused, if you will, on every human being conceived. It is that Imago Dei, in fact, that sets mankind apart from the rest of creation. The second monument marks the satanic strike at the core of the divine purposes for which God creates every male and female. The first is to be fruitful and multiply, dominating the earth as the Creator determined is good, found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and beyond. The second purpose is to be a living testimony to the mystery of God, becoming a man to save us from our sin. And whether you've ever put it together or not, that is explicitly found way up in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and forward. In the book of Judges now, God brought the nations against His set-apart people as a measure of loving discipline. Loving and caring enough to cause them pain in the moment in order to hopefully save them for eternity. And even though the text shows us God's own frustration with His wayward people, the narrative ends with the phenomenal grace of God. His people cried out, we read in Judges chapter 10, verse 16, the last phrase in that verse. His people cried out, and God could bear their misery of Israel no longer. And we should all be heartened by that. There is always hope for all of us. And you see, God didn't intend to bore us with the meaningless history of an ancient people just to make us miserable. Just to have somebody produce little through the Bible in a year pamphlets and programs and and apps to help us do that. He did so as an act of mercy so that we might learn from the mistakes of the past something people in general... But God's people in particular, through the ages, rarely seem to do. The historical narrative this morning continues with the geopolitical realities of the day. And the realities of the day were that the Ammonites were poised to go to war against Israel. And ironically, Israel had No leader. Verse 18 of Judges 10 is new material. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who's the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of the land of Gilead. God's people here are desperate. They need a general. They need a deliverer. And from what is recorded, God hasn't raised one up. And I use that phrase because that is the phrase which occurs repeatedly in the earlier text of Judges where God specifically and categorically chose them and sent them to rescue His people. They were hand-picked by God. But we don't read that here. So what do they do, or better, what don't they do? Well, they don't cry out to the Lord for help. They don't call a national day of worship with all the attendant offerings. They don't even call a prayer meeting. Remember how they got here in the first place. I said it by way of review at the very beginning here. They put God on a shelf. While there seem to be a positive sign or two in what we read last week, they are far from a point of national revival. They're only at the very beginning of turning back to the Lord, but even that is really half-hearted in light of my observation last week concerning verse 15. The situation is urgent and they have to do something now. Now. Remember, the Ammonites are sitting off there, poised, ready to attack. The implication here is that whether God is involved or not, they have to find a leader. Now, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, oh no, that's, that's, uh, yeah, never mind. I read a book, entitled Dynamics of Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace, who at the time was professor of uh, church history at Gordon-Conwell. This is what he wrote. Here is where Pentecostals and Charismatics reflect the authentic revival tradition of Protestants, referring to people like uh, George Whitefield and uh, Ludwig von Zinzendorf. When they commence a venture, it is with hours of prayer. While with ordinary evangelicals, it is with hours of talk and organization. The result is often that the charismatics achieve supernatural results while the rest of us obtain what is organizable. I read that and I went, Doh! Good point. The solution of God's people here in their moment of urgency is purely practical, rather than prayerful. A leader is not emerging. We have to sweeten the pot. So if we can get someone willing to command our army, we'll also make them governor over the whole land. Or president, if you wish. What I find a bit humorous in a warped kind of way is that this leader they are searching for didn't necessarily even have to be good. He just had to be willing. We need somebody. We're going to get attacked. Anybody? Anybody? Hello? Now think of the hundreds of thousands of the population of God's people. No leader emerging. And if he does come forth, we will make him our military ruler, as well as our civic ruler. Well, not a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. But a man once wrote, we the people are the boss and we will get the kind of political leadership, be it good or bad, that we demand and deserve. You might know the name. Uh, It was John F. Kennedy in Profiles and Courage. As I read these words from Warren Wearsby concerning this passage that we're looking at in Judges, think about... Our current day. What's true, quoting, what's true of political leadership is often true of spiritual leadership. We get what we deserve. When God's people are submitted to him and serving him, he sends them gifted servants to instruct and lead them. But when their appetites turn to things of the world and the flesh, he judges them by depriving them of good and godly leaders. Another man wrote a long, long time ago, the righteous perish and no one ponders it in his heart. That was Isaiah, the prophet. Now, all of this would seem to buttress my statement last week about the possible insincerity of Israel's repentance that I talked about last week at the end of chapter 10. They were sorry enough for the jam that they had gotten themselves into, but their cries for help seemed to go only as deep as God's willingness to remove the consequences of their actions. In other words, they're not sorry for what they did. They're sorry that it ended up so horribly. Now, let me hark back to September 11th. 2001. Another unique occurrence in our nation's history was that brief moment of congressional unity. Seeing our leaders, our legislators, standing together, everyone praying to their own God in their own way. And while it was nice to see such symbolism... I remember thinking, or maybe perhaps because I do this, saying it out loud just to the air, on what grounds are we asking for God's help, for God's protection, and God's mercies as a nation? In other words, what in heaven's name gives us the right? Isn't what I'm going to say more like the truth? God, as a nation... Truth be told, we despise the mention of your name, except as a curse word. We prohibit public instruction of your word. We recoil at the celebration of your birth. We fabricate the history of your people. That will make more sense later on. We slaughter image bearers of the Imago Dei. And we sanctify, that means declare as to be holy, All manner of perversion, we punish good behavior and reward wicked. And in your name, we who declare to know you, seek you when it's our fancy. We worship you when the weather, the tournament, the game, the ice, the trails, the streams, the courts, the camps, or the bed is not hospitable. We beseech your assistance when it's to our advantage, And we sin with brazen audacity, then plead with you to remove the consequences. It seems we have grown quite numb to the lessons of history. Lord, we need a leader. We're desperate. You see the army out there. The Ammonites are poised. And Jephthah has some experience as a soldier. And I heard he's at least available, if not willing. What's really interesting is that, again, of all you think of the population of Israel and of all the people in Israel, Jephthah is the one available. It will make more sense in a second. We pick up with chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior. He was experienced as a soldier. But he was the son of a harlot. A whore. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore him sons. That is, his real wife, his legitimate wife. Bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah, the one who was born of the whore. They drove him out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tov, which in Hebrew means good. And worthless fellows, <laughs> like that, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. Jephthah was an illegitimate child, but his father Gilead was at least honorable enough to treat him like a son. He brought him into his household. Oh, but as time goes on, the brothers are aging. That is, his half-brothers, born of Gilead's wife, would have none of it. And it wasn't because they were so offended that he had been born of another woman. It all has to do about the coin. Because you see, if he's allowed to stick around and something happens to Gilead and he dies, their inheritance is cut by one more brother to share. So his half-brothers disown him, coercing him to leave. Well, as it turns out, reading between the lines, admittedly, Jephthah has some natural leadership qualities. And while he's out on his own, he forms a posse of less than society's finest. The word here in the NAS is the same one that's used back in chapter 9, verse 4, concerning the lowlifes, or again it's translated there, the worthless individuals that Abimelech hired to be in his gang. So right at the first, to begin with, this isn't the kind of resume you want to see from the person you want to be, both your commanding general and you're going to turn the civic rule over to him, basically making him your president as well, unless you're desperate. Verse 4 through 11. And it came about, after a while that, the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And it happened when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, <laughs> Well, there's got to be some, some tone, and understandably, and some real attitude in this. You can't blame them. Uh, excuse me. Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? And yet now you come to me when you're in trouble? Hmm? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we've now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Well, all right, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, make note of that, and the Lord gives them up to me, I'll become your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then verse 11 is instructional. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah, underscore, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. For all of Jephthah's apparent street smarts that he learned when he was out on his own, it seemed to serve him quite well. Certainly, he would have had it much easier staying in his father's and his brother's home. But it's not a stretch to see that if he had, what is the likelihood that Jephthah would not have succumbed to the same spiritual laziness that engulfed all of the Gileadites? In verse nine, he knows that unless God gives him the victory, he sunk. And despite Israel's informality in what's a very serious national decision, which, by the way, is another manifestation of their spiritual lethargy, their whole informality in what is recorded here, Jephthah, it seems, takes the initiative to follow the protocols of a man of faith. Because in verse 11, remember, what is reported and what isn't reported is both intentional and inspired. And in verse 11, Jephthah is the one that is noted as following the protocols of a faithful Jew in the swearing-in ceremony before the Lord. Jephthah, the outcast of the religious community with a less than stellar past is the one who is behaving like a faithful worshiper of Jehovah while the people of promise are still spiritually apathetic. So it sounds after all like Jephthah's is a pretty solid guy in spite of all his life and disadvantage and opportunity. To play the victim card. But again we have to remember that the Bible interprets the Bible. So is there anything else in the scriptures to make us think that I'm correct. That maybe Jephthah was a pretty together guy after all. And of course I don't ask questions like those. Unless I can say yes there is. But it's way up in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11. This is what we read. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and of Barak, Samson. Those Remember, those are all judges that we've already talked about. Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness. And he goes on talking about obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, etc., And remember that Hebrews chapter 11 is called Faith's Hall of Fame. And Jephthah is singled out in Faith's Hall of Fame, meaning he was far and away and heads above a man of faith. Thousands of years later, recorded for all of posterity. Jephthah may not have been raised up by God, at least not like the others, but in God's mercy... And in spite of Israel's lack of wisdom, it seems like they're getting a pretty decent leader in spite of their unwise methodology due to their desperation. Well, the next pericope in this historical saga is like reading the news today. And again, you're going to see why, depending on how far we get this morning. Verses 12 and 13. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you've come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably now. Give me what's mine, what you took from me. And we'll turn and walk away. This is really interesting. You see, Jephthah tries a reasoned diplomatic approach to the Ammonites' reason for war, which is a Middle East land dispute. Obviously, his reasoned diplomatic approach Historically accurate approach went nowhere. So he attempts to school the king of the Ammonites about the factual reality of the land in question. The factual reality of Middle Eastern history. Verses 14 to 20. But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon. And they said to him, thus says Jephthah. Israel didn't take away the land of Moab. Remember, we're talking about things that happened centuries ago. They did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. Now, here's what really happened, Mr. Mister. When they came up from Egypt... And Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea, and they came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, the people of the land, saying, Please, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab. But he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. And then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom in the land of Moab. And they came to the east side of the land of Moab. And they camped beyond the Arnon. But they didn't enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please, Let us pass through your land to our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people and camped in Yahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, I'll stop there for a moment. Israel's past sees them trying to do what is right at great cost. An inconvenience to them. Instead of taking the straight line into the land of promise, uh, they couldn't get permission to go. And they go way out of the way and way around. And all that that means. And they're not hopping on jets or even in trains or buses or cars. They are being eminently respectful of each nation's territory. And again, when they refused permission to cut through, they said, well, darn, we'll try another king in another nation. And they kept getting turned down. And the last attempt ended up with the paranoid Sihon declaring war against Israel when they hadn't done anything. Now, understand, okay? to state the obvious, that when someone declares war against you, You either fight back or you're cooked. That's it. You're either vanquished or you fight back. Well, Jephthah presents the king of the Ammonites now based on the factual realities of what happened with the land that they're all ticked off about and demanding they give back or they're going to wipe them out. He gives him four reasons how the king is factually misrepresenting history. His memory of what actually took place in his own historical past was grossly deficient. So what happened? Verses 21 and 22. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. First reason, the king states for war, that Jephthah is on stolen land is absolutely bogus. Israel didn't steal anything. Jephthah says my ancestors won it when your ancestors picked a fight. And it was either fight or die. But lo and behold, you happened to lost. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. Marginal reading of the Hebrew. Reason number two, verses 23 and 24. Since now the Lord... The God of Israel drove out the Amorites from before His people Israel. Are you then to possess it? And now He really turns it on him. Verse 24, Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess. You see, Jehovah God gave us us that land just like Chemosh God gave you the land that you are currently on. Your right for keeping the land you have is because your God gave it to you. End of your story. So, likewise. Our God gave us the land and like you, we're keeping it. Now see, what you don't understand or probably don't understand is that in the culture of the day it was absolutely it might as well have been a rule of law that when one nation went warring against another nation and the one that prevailed they were very spiritual even the abject pagans were spiritual. They believed that who won or who lost was entirely dependent on whose God was greater and stronger. And so the rule of law, if you will, was that if you won, your God was superior, and therefore the land's yours, no questions asked. Drat, we're out of here. And they believed that, that is the Ammonites believed that, because the land they were on was because in their past history, the god Chemosh, as far as they were concerned, gave them their land. This is all very interesting to modern days in the Middle East, which I don't think we're going to get to today. Reason number three, verses 25 and 26. And now, king of the Ammonites, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel or did he ever fight against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aror and its villages, in other words, the land that their God Jehovah had given them when they were ruthlessly and needlessly attacked. In all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years of history we're talking about. Why did you not recover them? Meaning, why did your ancestors not recover them then? The clear answer, again, is because you know the law of the land. (laughs) King Moab, who was a mighty king, he never tried to get it back. He said, drat, their God is king. He knew the rules of the game. So what he's saying to him is, look, it's been three centuries, pal. You better get a grip. You need a new history lesson. If someone genuinely thought that they had legal claim to the disputed land, they would have squawked long before now. In verse 27, the fourth and last reason that he gives. I, therefore, have not sinned against you, buckwheat. But you are doing me wrong by making war against me. So, may the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. What we are reading in this ancient book is the forerunner of so much of what is going on now in the Middle East between the puny little strip of land called Israel and the rest of the massive non-Jewish Middle East. And the disputes over the respected lands with respect to lands and territories are being disputed by some, and I, I just could not come up with the right word there. I ended up with ill-defined, but it's that's not really the right word. But being disputed by the ill-defined, wrongly defined, uh, bizarrely, ridiculously, non-historically defined people group called Palestinians. And you'll see why, again, that is that way next week. What I'm going to do next week, where I'm going to begin, and actually this is the best place to cut it, is I am going to bring us all up to speed concerning present day in the Middle East with a crash course in factual Jewish history. Not the remanufacturing of history as the king of the Ammonite was sorely under and the powers and authorities that be today globally are also under and I will do so compellingly objectively with documented cited rule of law from global communities organizations etc what has happened to Israel national Israel that little piece of land is an absolute legal, forget the Bible, it is a travesty by legal terms, perhaps more than anything any country has experienced in the history of the world. No wonder it is such a hotbed of foment and of war and of ceaseless carnage and destruction. We don't learn from the things of the past. We are destined to repeat them. And so, when I think about the course this nation is on and the ideologies of leadership in the highest places of our land with a bent toward socialism, undenied, admitted. All we have to do is look again at history, the history of socialism. And there is not a nation ever known that ran on the basis of socialism that has been nothing but in unmitigated disaster and oppression, far worse oppression of the poor and the downtrodden, even more so than the very flawed system of capitalism. That is just a little bonus editorial, no charge. Let me have you stand, Lord of Heaven, I. I know that the reason for the utterly deaf ears and blinded eyes concerning factual history and reality, not just concerning the Middle East, but concerning the, the history of man. Lord, I know that it is a satanic delusion. And the only answer is for you, Lord, to intervene in mercy and grace and lift it. And lift it. Embarrassingly, I ask, O God, from those who declare themselves followers of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.